Well, famous German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these powerful words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. So, okay, Jesus, <laughs> sign me up. I mean, that is, that is like not the world's greatest marketing program. It's not real seeker-friendly. It's not going to work. I mean, maybe that's why the American evangelical church has to try so hard to kind of, you know, snazz that up a little bit. Make it all about us and the benefits to us and everything like that because, you know, coming to Jesus and just dying, that, that's not going to draw people to church. But what if dying to ourselves is the ultimate benefit? I mean, how can that be? It, it, it can only be so if that is worth it, if actually dying to ourselves is actually worth it. And what guarantee can we have that it is worth it? Just because the Bible says so? I would say it's even better than that because the biggest guarantee that we can have that it's worth it is that Jesus himself existed. The reality of Jesus, he really did live the perfect life. He really did go to the cross. He really did do all of those things and many more. He really was resurrected and ascended to heaven and really is returning one day. The reality of that should also further then be our motivation as we seek to be faithful to dying to ourselves. The following Jesus and his as his disciples, rather, it's not just based on feelings. It's based on reality. It's based on the reality that Jesus went before us and that it's worth it. And that Matthew is going to tell us all about that today with some very hard-hitting words, as you have already heard. Matthew 16, if you're not there, starting at verse 21. Last week, we saw a very famous and powerful passage, Jesus asking the crowds, who are the people saying that I am? And then lowering the boom and saying, okay, disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the representative disciple, responded, well, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And God revealed that to him. God reveals his truth to his people. But Jesus also said that Peter and all the other Peters that would follow him and that confession of the gospel would be the foundation, the rock on which his church is built, and the gates of hell would never stand against that. Not the basis of infallible popes, but of faithful men who confess their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So church, we stand on the shoulders of the disciples and the men and the women who went before us, those that confess the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus must be the center of his church. But what about the rest of the disciples? Were they ready to follow Jesus no matter where he told them to go? Would they continue to consider him the Christ, the son of the living God, no matter what he asked of them? And are we? Let's find out. Look again at the passage that Paul just read for us. Look at just the first verse in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribe, scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We see a major transition here in the ministry of Jesus. He says from that time, he's going to continue now to sharpen his focus on what awaits him, the events of what awaits him. Jesus is rounding the corner now to the cross, to all of the things that await him there. The disciples, he is warning, he is telling them that his earthly mission is going to end in Jerusalem and it's going to end on the cross. 
He will rise again from the grave. And think about the, the significance of this statement. You know, particularly on the heels of what they just confessed last week of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus knows what awaits him. Jesus predicts his own death in detail multiple times in all of the Gospels. This is not the only time that he says this. And church, the cross has always been the plan. And who's in charge of that plan? God. Jesus knows what awaits him. Don't let that fact get away from you. The cross is not a reaction. It's part of the plan. Jesus knows what's coming. It's not something going wrong where Jesus messed up and got himself killed, or when evil won the day. It's not something that went wrong. He is willingly going along with the plan of God, and he knows what's coming. So why is it for us when we see things going wrong, not according to our plan, that we then shoot up the flares to heaven and be like, uh, God, God, do you understand? Look, did you notice what happened on Wednesday? Perhaps you weren't paying attention. That was not my plan. Uh, are you, did you take a break or something? Like, well, how did you let that happen? Your job is supposed to make my life comfortable and easy. Quick, make it go away. Hurry up. Take this thing away from me. This is going wrong. When we all do that, and myself included, do that, I usually picture God rubbing his big, giant, divine forehead going, yeah, I, <laughs> I know what happened on Wednesday. I allowed it. I allowed it for a reason. I'm doing something here. You just don't want me to take it away. I'm at work. I have a plan. I'm sovereign, remember? Let me work. Let me do my thing. Our reactions to the plan of an infinitely wise and all-sovereign God are comical when we think about it. Why do we doubt his provision? Why do we doubt his sovereignty? Look at the model of Jesus already. He knows what's going to happen. He's fully entrusting himself. How do the disciples react to this confession? Yeah, not so good. Look at verse 22. And Peter, again, Peter, always Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. But Jesus, he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So Peter literally pulls Jesus aside, right? Ah, boss. Quick, quick sidebar here, just one, just little, um, how do I say this, but how about no, absolutely not, this is never going to happen, not now, not here, not ever, and let's, let's not also blow by with how disrespectful this is, a student never, ever reprimanded his rabbi, not to mention in public like that. Peter literally pulls Jesus aside and yells at him, rebukes him. The one he just called God in the flesh, by the way, a couple of verses ago. That's the beauty of this passage is we keep comparing to what Peter said this, last week to this week. Ah, right? oh, Peter. It's good that we have guys like Peter in the Bible, isn't it? Kind of makes us feel a little bit better. <laughs> we realize the shocking nature of how Peter speaks to Jesus. It's a little bit easier for us to see than how Jesus answers Peter. He turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about my things. You're thinking 
about your things. You're not thinking like me. You're thinking like you. You're thinking about your own ideas of how things should go. Does Jesus actually call him Satan? Well, sort of. Perhaps it's, it's more of a, a title, a representative. Peter is acting like a Satan, right? Satan meaning adversary. D.A. Carson writes that Satan, or Jesus is not claiming that Peter is demon-possessed, but that his rejection of the way of the cross reflects the attitude of Satan. What else is super interesting here in that our, world, our, our word for hindrance here is actually stumbling block or stumbling rock in the Greek. So in the span of what, a couple verses, Peter went from being the rock that the church is built upon to the rock that is getting in the way of the church. It is good that we have guys like Peter in the Bible. Also, we see, of course, in no way is Peter an infallible pope here. He is a man, he is a weak, impulsive man who loves Jesus and believes him, but yet is centered on himself and his wants. Could that not be every single one of us? I love Jesus, but I also love myself. And this is not going the way I want it to go. He's holding himself and his plans and his thoughts over and above the plan of God, the one he just confessed was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet, church, that is where the battle is for every single one of us. Will we focus on our own thoughts and our own things, our own ideas of how God should be and how things should look like, or are we going to focus on God's plan and just let him be God? Here's the point. The focus of a disciple is the plan of God. The focus of a disciple is the plan of God. And I hope you are feeling as much conviction as I have been about this passage. Again, I just, I just pass on the conviction that I get like about Thursday, so just give it to you, right? We can mock Peter all we want. How stupid. He yells at Jesus. That's always a bad idea. He resists the plan. Oh, no, don't go to the cross, Jesus. That would be a terrible thing to do. What? Yet how often do we balk and we go full Peter mode when God's plan clashes with our plan. That's not how I saw things working out in my mind, God. Maybe we go as far as to feel what Peter felt, perhaps, of course, not out loud, but maybe in our hearts we say, nope, no way, this is not how this is going to go, not now, not ever, fix this. I'm well aware, and I just want to put it in, I am well aware that there are people and we'll always be for that matter that are going through some very serious, very hard stuff. Please do not hear me saying, yep, sorry that your life is, a real hard, is in a real hard season right now. I am not saying just suck it up and get over it. Our God is merciful and compassionate and he is kind and he is gracious and he is abounding in steadfast love. He's promised us a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. He gives grace to the humble. But watch, he also what? Resists the proud. Peter's being proud, right? You're going through trials, I get that. I understand that there are people going through very serious things in here and they are going through it in their humility. That's not what Jesus is not telling you, get behind me, Satan. He's telling you I'm here. But he also resists the proud. He doesn't like a stiffened neck. I mean, sometimes we need the rebuke that Peter got, don't we? 
We see things developing. We get our backs up against God. We resist him. We resist his work in our lives. And he responds, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Mike. You don't have your mind on your own way. Instead, you're just focusing on your own plan instead of my plan. It's fine to struggle with the things that are are going on around us. It's fine. We see that in the scripture. It's fine to question God. It's fine to wrestle with where he has us. He knows that we're human, that we're finite, that we're sinful, that we're weak. But church, don't resist his plan. Trust his plan. I have many conversations pastorally where people are trying to figure out what God is up to, trying to determine God's plan, usually in crisis, right? Because that's when he gets our attention. Or when they're trying to make a decision about what God wants them to do with their lives. My first question is usually, how much time are you spending with God? If you want to hear from God, you should probably spend time with God. You should probably double or triple the time you spend with God if you want to hear what God is trying to tell you. And secondly, I'm going to tell you, he's going to tell you in here. He's going to tell you in his word. He's going to tell you through his spirit, speaking through his word. Luther, in midweek, shameless plug, held the word of God so highly, he says clearly, if you want to hear God's voice, read his word. That's where he speaks. Second, I would just say, what situations is he presenting you with? God works so many times with these just basic circumstances. Like, well, I have this opportunity. I don't know if I should do it. Well, I don't know. Walk through the door. See if the door closes or not. If it does, that's not the right plan. Try it. Walk through the door. God will let you know if you're not supposed to be here. But church, remember, God is always at work. Always at work. And also take encouragement. He's always at work even when we're resisting his plan. Right? He's always still working. Always working for his glory and our growth. And those two things are not incompatible. It's not always one or the other. Sometimes we can think, okay, I'll do God's plan. Maybe it'll be half as good as mine. Nope. God always knows the best for his children. Disciples need to focus on his plan, and in so doing, it will be the best for us. That's what we got to get through our heads. God is not working against our joy. God is working for our fullest joy. But it's sobering to think how quickly we can morph the God of the Bible into the God of our own felt needs. We want the therapeutic Jesus, the psychologist Jesus, the boost my self-esteem Jesus, the Jesus, I need you to do blank for me, Jesus. I, I need this kind of Jesus, not that kind of Jesus. Peter was most likely flipping out because his Jesus was going to lead them in a revolution against Rome or something. Kick out the Roman occupying forces, restore Israel, revolution! Not die on a cross. That doesn't fit my Jesus. That's not what I want you to do. That's not okay. That doesn't fit. That's not the kind of Jesus I want you to be. And church, are we trying to make Jesus into whatever we want him to be and do for us? And we are fighting against him the whole time. Disciples focus on the plan of God over and above our own plans. And Jesus will tell them much more, in much more powerful terms, what the requirements of being a disciple are. Look at verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Jesus never missing a teaching opportunity with his disciples. After he flames Peter, right, publicly, he turns to the rest of the disciples and says, guys, you want to do this? You want to follow me? Here's how it is. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross, and you are going to follow me. It's going to cost me my life. It might end up costing your lives as well, and you've got to be ready for that. In fact, guys, remember three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This statement was probably most certainly met with blank stares. Like, what are you talking about now? Really? Hopefully, it'll give us pause this morning as well. Here's the point. The call of a disciple is radical. The call of a disciple is radical, and I want to look at each one of these three statements, three commands, and pull them apart. First, Jesus says we are to deny ourselves. Church, we need to be very familiar with saying no to ourselves. We need to master the discipline of self-denial, and those that have gone before us, many Puritans, many church fathers, they've harped and harped and harped on self-denial, so it was very hard of me to pick out one quote, so I decided to go Puritan and Richard Baxter, and he wrote a whole book on it. Here's a big quote for us. Search now, he's talking to us, and try your hearts by these evidences whether you are possessed of this necessary grace of self-denial. Oh, make not light of the matter, for I must tell you that self is the most treacherous enemy and the most insinuating deceiver in the world. It will be with, within you when you are not aware of it and will conquer you when you perceive yourselves not much troubled with it. Of all other vices, selfishness is both the hardest to find out and the hardest to cure. Be sure then in the first place that you have self-denial. And then be sure you use it and live in the practice of it. When we talk about self-denial, church, we're mainly talking about the discipline required for us to say no to sin. We're talking about the discipline of saying no to sin, but yes to how God wants us to live. Right? We are not talking about white-knuckled Christianity here. Where I'm just like holding on and I'm not going to do that thing. I'm not going to do whatever. I'm not going to do that sin. Okay, great. That's half of it. <laughs> Don't do the sin, but do what God has called you to do. The Bible calls us so much more of what to do than it does what not to do. What is self-denial? Again, it's saying no to sin. Do you see the fight that is here in this? The Apostle Paul has much to say on this. Romans 6. Again, I had a hard time picking out a supporting verse, because there are so many, but Romans 6, 12, and 14 might get us started. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin, as instruments for unrighteousness. Watch this. Here's the other part. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members then to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What are our decisions regarding a devotion to God or a devotion to ourselves? We feel this fight every single moment of every single day, don't we? Sin is right there, crouching at the door. It always wants us to sin. It always wants us to take advantage of it. Our good friend, 
Uh, Jamie, we, were, we had a wonderful uh, rehearsal dinner, did a, did a wonderful family wedding this weekend. We had a, a, a dinner, and it was at this very nice restaurant, and these guys made the best rolls that you could possibly make. They were like fresh out of the oven, and they were sprinkled with sea salt and a bunch of other things. I'm a big bread person, right? So these rolls came, and, and, and Jamie wasn't able to be with us, and so, so we decided to torture Jamie by sending her, like 15 of us, just took a picture of a roll and sent it to Jamie. That was... No caption, no nothing, just send a picture of her favorite roles to her. And she, <laughs> she writes back to me in all caps, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Sometimes church, we just have to stare our sin in the face and we have to say, get behind me, Satan. You are not on the right track here. You are not calling me to what is good for my life. So straight up, where are you saying no to yourself? No, I'm not going to have one more bite, one more serving, one more drink, one more whatever. No, I'm not going to hit the snooze one more time. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to get in the word and I'm going to pray. No, I'm not going to click on that. No, I'm not going to space out on my phone instead of interacting with my wife or my husband or my family. No, I'm going to redeem the time. No, I'm not going to slack off at work or cut corners. I'm not going to cheat on a test at school. No, I'm going to be diligent. No, I'm not going to lose it with my kids again. I'm going to cultivate patience, whatever that takes. No, I'm not going to have sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. The call of the disciple is radical and radical self-denial. And we see this, we feel this at every single turn, right? Our heart says, do this, and we have to override that with the Holy Spirit that's inside us in God's word and say, no, I'm not gonna do that. Get behind me, Satan. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna deny myself. We should be very familiar with saying no to it. Do we see this in the world today? Oh, yeah. Just our American culture is just full of self-denial and consideration of others and, no. It's in the air that we breathe. It's about you. You have to do what you have to do to make yourself happy. Whatever you need, buy this, drink this, this exercise program, this place to live, this whatever. There's no denying yourself. There's indulging yourself. Just find new and interesting ways to make yourself feel good about yourself. Complete polar opposite. A disciple is radically countercultural. Another radical call of the disciple. Look at verse 24 again. Jesus says, pack your cross. He says, take up your cross. The cross, of course, being one of the primary instruments of execution in the Roman government. We're very familiar with it. The first century, a convicted criminal would literally have to carry their cross beam through the streets, as we know that Jesus did before he went and was crucified. Jesus, of course, will end up on a cross. The disciples should expect that as well. Some of them will. Legend has it Peter himself was crucified on a cross and crucified upside down because he said, I don't want to be crucified in the same way my Lord was. I'm not worthy. So the Romans, in their sick sense of humor, said, okay, we can fix that. In the immediate context, Jesus is telling the disciples that they should expect physical death. That's the immediate context. You guys are probably going to get killed for following me. Are you ready for that? Did you take up your cross? Are you prepared? 
The reality is, of course, many have been martyred for Jesus. Many continue to be martyred for Jesus. We thank God we live in the country we do, but we are experiencing persecution, marginalization. We're experiencing all of those things, but it's probably not likely that anybody's going to die for their faith in America in 2022. doesn't mean it won't ever happen. But what we're talking about in our context then primarily is what? Death to self. Death to sin. Death to the way I want things to go. Be ready to go all the way in following Jesus Christ. Carson puts it like this, again, so helpful. Death to self is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus, but a continuing characteristic of it. We don't get to say, oh yeah, I killed myself when I, well, killed death to myself, and when I was uh, five in VBS and I decided to follow Jesus, I did it once. No, we, we get the pleasure of doing it every single day, all day long, saying no to ourselves, being ready to go all the way. How far do we go in obtaining spiritual maturity? Whatever it takes. How far do we go in fighting sin? Whatever it takes. How far do we go in loving others? Whatever it takes. The church in Philippi asked Paul, I love this in Philippians 2, they're basically like, hey, Paul, quick question, how far do we go with this whole Christian thing? Like, do we just like 50%, 60%? Jesus answers, or Paul answers them, of course, in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. It's very subtle, but he points them right to what we're talking about here. Starts off all nice and happy in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of one mind. Cool. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Uh Uh-oh, getting a little convicting here. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but the interests of others. How far do we go with that, Paul? Well, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How far do we go with this Christian thing? Paul says, I don't know, it cost Jesus his life. Why don't you start there? That's, that's what we should be talking about here. It's not, it's not how, how little do I have to put into this thing to be called a Christian, right? Jesus says, take up your cross, be ready. Paul says, be like Jesus. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In midweek again, shameless plug, we stuttered, studied Luther this week, Calvin coming up can't wait. We looked briefly at Luther's theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. Theology of glory says, what can I get from Jesus? How's my life going to be better? What benefits and blessings are there? How much notoriety and status or people think I'm wonderful because I'm identified with Christ or the church? Luther says, that's nonsense. We're called to theology of the cross. We're called to humility. We're called to self-sacrifice. We're called to death to ourselves, not glorification of ourselves. We don't follow Jesus just for the glory and the blessings. One of my seminary professors put it this way in one of his books. 
To carry a cross means to deny ourselves to whatever defined and directed our lives before we met our Maker, before we came to Him as Savior and began to follow Him as Lord. The nature of that cross will be different from person to person. For some people, their cross is the loneliness of unwanted singleness. For others, their cross is stage four cancer eating away at vital organs. Others may experience searing depression that makes happiness a faraway island. Each of us has a cross. There are no easy paths to following Christ. And if you're reading this as a Christian who cannot identify your cross, then to be blunt, your life is characterized by comfort or compromise more than cross-carrying. Why do we deny ourselves? Why do we take up our cross? Because Jesus says, that's what to do. Okay, fine. But why? That's what it says to follow Jesus. Jesus tells them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and the third thing, follow me. Look at verse 24. Again, based on those actions, he says... Take ongoing, continuous action. This verb is in a different tense than the other verbs in the Greek, and it is ongoing, continuous action. So this is more like be continuously following me. There's other things you have to do from time to time, but this is a continuous action. Every single day, follow me. Following Jesus is not a one-time thing. We wake up each morning. We have a day full of choices ahead of us. Do we deny ourselves or do we give in to ourselves? Do we do what it takes to grow as a disciple, or do we half-heartedly pursue maturity? Think of it this way. The disciple's radical call includes at the top of his list every single day, follow Jesus. Whatever Jesus calls me to, however he calls me to live, in his word, that's what I have to do. All day, every day, follow Jesus. Do what he does. Be like him. Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. Not the culture, not friends, certainly not my own sinful heart. We have a model, and his name is Jesus, and his disciples follow him. That's radical. And so why would we do such craziness? Because it's worth it. Look at verse 25. He says, for, each one of these couple verses are going to start with a, a purpose statement here. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Note how Jesus connects these thoughts. In each one of these verses, 25, 26, 27, he starts with the word for, meaning here's the reason. Why would you deny yourself? Why would you take up your cross? Why would you be following Jesus? Why is it worth it? And I want to say it this way, simply, the way of a disciple is worth it. The way of a disciple is worth it. And we're going to look at a couple reasons why. Verse 25, first, by losing your life, you actually find it. By losing your life, you actually find it. Isn't this the total opposite of our culture? That doesn't make any sense. I'm supposed to be milking this life for everything it could possibly give me in every area of my life. 
but you want me to throw my life away, and then you tell me that's how I actually live. Yes, but it depends who are you doing it for. You're doing it for yourself? You just throw your life away for yourself. You're doing it in pursuit of Jesus and denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him? Then yes, that's how you find your actual life. Again, Jesus is not hiding our lives from us. He's giving us our lives. Culture can't do that. Culture says, find your life, live your life. Jesus says, no, live my life. (laughs) Then you will find your life. Jesus says, the more you try to live your life in this world and find your, your identity, your joy, your purpose, everything out in this world, right? That's the more you're actually going to lose it. One study Bible put it like this, the person who rejects God's will and instead pursues his own will for his life ultimately loses eternal, eternally every good thing he's trying to find in the first place. Doesn't make any sense. We will never be sorry that we follow Jesus too devotedly, ever. We will never be sorry that we love Jesus over this world. We will never be sorry that we denied ourselves. We said no to sin and deepened our faith and maturity in Jesus. Why follow Jesus? Because by dying to yourself, you actually live. The second reason why is following Jesus worth it? Look at verse 26. Jesus gives us what the world can't. The world can't nourish our souls. It can't fulfill us like a relationship with our creator We can't gain our souls by finding it in this life. This life can't provide what we're looking for it to do. Sometimes we we even choose this life over Jesus and we eternally lose our souls. Why? Because we're so focused on us and our pursuits. Are we really a believer? It's a very dangerous compromise. What, What are our lives characterized by? What difference does it make if we achieve all our dreams, have the perfect family, the dream job, the perfect GPA, the bank account with the right number in it, the sweet retirement plan? If we lose our souls, where did it all go? What is it all doing? Nothing. It's worthless. Think about that for a moment. Where are we pouring all of our energy into? This world or the next world? Sometimes, church, we just try and expect way more out of this life than it's designed to give it. We're trying to find way too much joy and identity and purpose, and sometimes I just got to look at people and go, we live in a sin-filled world. It's never going to be the way we want it to be, ever, until Jesus returns. That's the point. We feel that yearning for heaven. We feel that yearning for Jesus to come back and right with this wrong, this world has done wrong and turning from him. Sometimes we get so obsessed because, man, my life is just not the way I want it. I just have this one thing that just still is, mm, normal. We're supposed to feel that, mm, we're supposed to feel that as good as life is, it's still just not. Because we're made for another life, right? There's another world, and that's where Jesus goes next. Third reason why following Jesus is worth it, verse 27, because judgment is real. There's a spiritual reality at work behind all the day-to-day stuff of shoveling snow of caring for the kiddos, of dealing with sickness, of the drudgery of going to work each day, of running businesses, of the conflicts and tensions of relationships, of this thing called COVID. All of that, behind that relationship, there's a a spiritual reality that we don't always think about. The spiritual reality is judgment is real, and one day Jesus will return, and he will return to judge. 
Now, anytime we hit on this, we've got to be very careful to cut this carefully. Christians will not be judged for their sin. Christians will not be judged for their sin. Why not? Because they already judged at the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us time and time again. Romans tells us. Old New Testament basically tells us. The cross judged our sin once and for all. God's wrath was paid out. It was propitiated. It was satisfied. It is done. That's the point. You trust Christ, you go from guilty to innocent. You will not be judged for your sin when Christ returns. You will be judged for what you did with the life God gave you. You will be judged for what you did with the brain he put in your head and the resources he gave you and the family and the cars and everything else, whatever it is. He's going to say, what did, you do? what did you do for my glory? Our works will be judged in that way, but it won't be for salvation, right? We'll be rewarded, right? But, this is the hard part, but we've got to say it. Non-Christians, those who are not in Christ, will be judged for their sin. Why? Because they haven't been already. John 3.36, one of the scariest verses in the Bible, says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? Because the wrath of, the God, wrath of God remains on him. So we all, and I just got to harp on this just for a second, right? We, we, we all enter this world with sin. We all enter this world totally depraved, separated from God, under the curse of sin, right? When you become a Christian, right, you believe by faith the gospel of who Jesus is, he saves you. He removes the wrath of sin. He removes the curse of sin. He forgives you. You are justified by faith alone. Another shout out to Luther in midweek, right? If I keep doing that, we're going to pack that room up there. <laughs> but if you have never come to that understanding of I'm a sinner and I need a savior, guess what? That sin's still on your shoulders. And you will go to see God in judgment with that sin on your shoulders and you do not want to be in that position. So if you have not trusted in Christ, repent and believe and mean it today and live like it. Have that burden of sin because judgment is real. Judgment is coming. Why is following Jesus worth it? Because judgment is real. Jesus then adds to this in verse 28 with his famous qualifying statement and the, the subtitle of our series, truly I am saying to you, it means what I'm about to say is really true. I'm telling you, you should really pay attention. And it's really important. Please hear me. And then he drops this super confusing statement that has been interpreted a host of ways all over the years in verse 28. He says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I think... Well, first of all, people sometimes say, well, he's talking about transfiguration because that's what's going to happen next. Or he's talking about the resurrection, or he's talking about Pentecost, or he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And sometimes I think we lose sight of the forest when we only pick out one little tree and all of that stuff. I think maybe the best way to interpret this stuff is that it's all of it. We're going to harp on one little thing. Sure, yes, yes, yes. It's all those things. Why? Because Jesus said, go back to verse 21. What did he say? He said, things are changing. You're going to see, you're going to see things with your eyes that you are not going to believe, but they're actual things, they're reality, they're going to happen. And I think this is another thing that he's saying. Yes, you're going to see all of those things. Things are changing. We're getting closer to the end. There are big things ahead. You will see them with your own eyes. All of those things I just mentioned. Those men standing before Jesus 
They will live to see the transfiguration in Jesus in all his glory. They will live to see him arrested and mocked and beaten and nailed to a cross. They will live to see the resurrection. They will live to see Pentecost. Some of them will flee for their lives when the Romans finally crush the Jewish uprising in 70 AD and burn Jerusalem to the ground. What's the point of all this? Why is he telling them all this? To get ready. He says to get ready to follow me, to be motivated to understand that the reality of these things is going to happen, and this is what I call you to as disciples, to focus on the plan of God, to understand the radical call he calls them to, and to understand how truly worth it it is. So here's the big idea. The reality of the life of Jesus is the motivation of his followers. The reality of the life of Jesus is the motivation of his followers. Think about it. Why does a disciple focus on the plan of God over and above their own selves in America? It doesn't make any sense. It's the reality of who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said. Jesus in the garden said what? Is there any way that we can do this without me going to the cross? If there's any way possible for this cup to be taken from me? And then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's why we say no to our own plans. That's why we hold them loosely and we, we say yes to what God wants to do. That's the reality because Jesus experienced it. Why does a disciple answer such a radical call to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him? Because that's the reality of what Jesus did. We saw Jesus. He was the master of self-denial. He denied himself and was obedient to the Father to the point of death. Not that he went unwillingly but he was fully on board with the plan and he followed it even unto death. He literally took up his cross. That's why we take up his cross. The reality of what Jesus did should then motivate us to take up our cross. Why is the way of the disciple worth it? Because it's the reality of what Jesus won for us. Jesus gives us life. The world and sin only take that away. Jesus is the fulfillment of what sin only deceitfully promises Jesus will one day judge forever, eternally, every single person, and he will usher in the new heavens and new earth, and the reality of Jesus is the motivation of his followers. Think about it. Jesus starts this encounter by saying, hey, guys, listen, things are changing. From now on, you're going to see things moving closer to the reality of me going to the cross. You're going to see this with your own eyes. You're going to watch me die. You're going to see me resurrected. You're going to see the Holy Spirit come down at Pentecost and empower the church. You're going to see it grow against persecution. You'll see me ascend to heaven and go back to the Father. You'll see Jerusalem burn as I use the Roman army to judge the Jewish nation. These things are reality. Take heart. Don't be encouraged. Focus on the plan of God above your own plans. Answer the radical call of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Understand the world and sin lies to you. They can't deliver what they promise, but I can. Following me is worth it because I'm a reality, because these things are a reality, because my life is a reality. What you see me going through, everything that is coming, put that together with what I'm calling you to. Let that be the motivation for following me every day of your life. Bonhoeffer also wrote in his book, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. What is the assurance that it's all worth it? Jesus himself. The reality of the life of Jesus is a motivation to his followers. Father God, 
This passage is strongly worded, Lord. This passage has application in all of our hearts. But Lord, would you convince us of the reality of what you went through in our hearts beyond a shadow of a doubt? Would you cause us to remember who you are? Would you give us the strength and the transformation to not fight your hand, to not force our own plans when you have something else for us? To say no to ourselves, to be ready to do whatever it takes to say no to ourselves, to take up our cross, to be prepared for the judgment, Lord, that will come one day. And Lord, we pray that we see the reality of who you are in your word, and that motivates us to follow you for the glory of your name. We pray it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.